What's good, everybody? Welcome back to the I'm Telling You What podcast. This is Blakely, and we are on episode three. And let me tell y'all something. This one is, wow, I don't really have a lot of words for this one. Uh, We are talking about a true crime case, if you can't tell by the title. There might be a dead giveaway because of the word disappearance (laughs) in the title. But um, I will probably say this about every single case that I do, but this one truly, I mean... It's just a lot. There's a lot of details. There's a lot of moving parts. There's a lot of changing of um, stories. Yeah, there's just a lot of that. So I'm going to do the best that I possibly can to explain this and tell this story in an organized way. I have worked very hard (laughs) on my research and organizing my notes. And in case you're wondering, there's seven pages of notes. Yeah. But I promise you, it's seven pages of necessary notes. (laughs) So, without further ado, um, let's talk about the disappearance of Suzanne Morphew, because I'm telling you what, just buckle your seatbelts. Okay, guys, so before we get too far into this, I want to give a little background like I normally like to do just because I think it helps with the details of things. And I don't know, for me, I'm able to understand a little bit more. Um, Sorry if you just heard that little jingle. My cat, Nugget, just grabbed his collar. Um, Sorry. (laughs) But anyway, this is like the third time I have recorded this, by the way. So... It's like 10.50 p.m. I'm tired of editing my voice. So I'm just going to roll with it and just pray that I don't mess up or go too fast. So <laughs> oh, pray for me. So with that said, let's go ahead and dive right into this. So let's talk about Suzanne Morphew first. Um, when Suzanne disappeared, she was 49 years old um, and she disappeared on Mother's Day of 2020. So that would have been May 10th of 2020. Um, She is originally from Indiana and she moved to Colorado with her family in 2018. Um, And something interesting that I read about Suzanne was that she had beaten Hodgkin's lymphoma twice. Um, Once before her children were born and after the family moved to Colorado in 2018. That's pretty amazing. Um, Suzanne married her husband Barry Morphew in 1988 and they were married for 32 years at at the time of her disappearance and together they had two daughters Mallory and Macy and they are both adults now and they are gorgeous girls and um they seem like they're very sweet and that's really all I'm gonna say about them because to be honest like they don't have anything to do with their mother's disappearance so i you know, there's really no need to go any further into their lives. (laughs) So another cool thing that Suzanne did was that she ran a charity organization that operated under her name and she started the Suzanne R. Morphew Hope Foundation in 2012, um, initially in Indiana, but it is now based out of Salida, Colorado as of 2020. And don't come for me if I mispronounced Salida. Um, (laughs) That's just how I'm going to say it. So if you're from Colorado and know the correct way to say it, just tell me after you listen to this. (laughs) 
from what I could find, um, the purpose of her foundation was to address needs of children in various global locations by showing the love of Jesus Christ in tangible ways to address recognized needs. Um, that's pretty awesome because I think we can all agree that there are plenty of children around the world that have some dire needs. So good for her. Good for her. Um, so that's a little bit about Suzanne. Um, now I want to talk about her husband, Barry. Barry owns a company called BLM Enterprises, which is a landscaping company that he started in 2004. So he and his company would build decks. Uh, they did hardscaping, mulching, just, you know, general landscaping. Um, so kind of keep that in the back of your mind as we move forward through this. Um, so when uh, the Morphews moved to Colorado, they moved to the Maysville area and the home that they bought was valued, well, it's believed to be valued at $1.5 million. So in case you're wondering, it was a mansion, um, a beautiful home, completely surrounded by mountains and I mean like I guess that's kind of true for most properties in Colorado but it's beautiful and from what I can gather Suzanne wasn't as thrilled about this move as Barry was and that could have possibly been because when they moved to Colorado their house in Indiana was still on the market and it wouldn't sell until a year later in 2019 and it sold for $800,000 according to real estate records. Um, so I can understand why she would have been a little hesitant. Um, and actually one source was quoted saying that she had some angst about the move itself. So that's kind of interesting. Um, I mean, if you're battling cancer and you're moving, like I, I can't imagine, um, that's a lot on someone's plate. Um, so their home in Colorado was located on Puma Path in Maysville, and I did some sleuthing <laughs> on my Maps app, and I looked at some aerial views of their property, and let me tell y'all something. Um, there is not a lot around this home. Um, it was off of County Road 225 and Highway 50 is like the general area this was in and when I zoomed out to look at like surrounding homes if there were any like how far away they were there are some that are close by but they're not like like they're separated by woods it's not like you can see the neighbor's house you know what I mean but there were five other homes that I counted um that were in like short distance from their house but they were all vacation homes and at the time Suzanne disappeared, they were all empty. So, unfortunately, that doesn't really help. Um, and I also wanted to note that their house was an hour and 39 minutes south of Breckenridge. So, those of us who have been to Colorado, or if you're from Colorado, that's kind of the area we're looking at. And something that I also like to do <laughs> when I go places is I want to know how far away the Walmart is. Because to me... Wherever the Walmart is, that's kind of like civilization. Because wherever there's a Walmart, there's places to eat. 
You know what I mean? So I went on my Google Maps and I searched the Walmart. And they're about 17 minutes from the closest Walmart. So in my opinion, that's not too far from civilization. Um, but if you're like 30 minutes from the Walmart or more, then yeah, you might be a little out in the country. Or in Colorado, I guess it's considered the wilderness. But anyway, um, but their property had lots of hills and, you know, like I said, they were surrounded by mountains and, you know, hills in Colorado are not the same as hills in Georgia or Tennessee. <laughs> so the terrain varies quite a bit. Um, it's steep. It can be treacherous. It is rocky. It's all the things. So now you kind of understand the geographic area that we're dealing with here. So now that we've discussed that, let's talk about the actual disappearance of Suzanne Morphew. So as I mentioned before, Suzanne went missing on Mother's Day, which was May 10th of 2020. And Suzanne reportedly went on a bike ride, which was something she would normally do. And she never returned home. And um, her daughters were out of town on a camping trip. And... <clears throat> They texted their mother on Mother's Day and they were like, oh, hey, mom, like, happy Mother's Day. We love you being the sweet daughters that they are. And they did not get a response back. And they became concerned um, when they did not get a message back because Suzanne was someone who had her phone on her pretty much all the time. And don't quote me on this, but from what I gathered from multiple sources, um, when they realized that their mom hadn't responded for a while, they then got in touch with their friends, I'm pretty sure. And so her friends also tried to reach out to Suzanne and they were also not getting any response back. And they became very concerned. So they called their neighbor, um, and I believe you pronounce her name Jean. But Jean Ritter, who was 70 years old, was their neighbor. And Suzanne's friends called her and they were like, hey, we haven't heard from Suzanne in a while. Um, could you just like go to their house and see if she's there? Maybe her, you know, like phone died or something. So she said, sure. So Jean went to go check on her and she didn't see a single trace of Suzanne. So she immediately called authorities and reported her a missing person. So the Chafee County Communication Center received a report at 5.46 p.m. on May 10th of a missing woman in the area on County Road 225 and West Highway 50. Um, so, like I said, I looked at aerials of this house, but I also looked at aerials of this road. And there's not much, y'all. Like a county road in Colorado, it's basically just a dirt road in the middle of the woods. Um, yeah. It's kind of what I gathered. Like, I've been on a dirt road in Montana, and there was literally nothing but prairie dogs. So, <laughs> I don't know if Colorado's the same way, but a county road out west is pretty desolate. Um, not all of them are, I guess, but this one definitely was. And the sheriff's office called the Chafee County Search and Rescue after receiving this initial phone call from Jean Ritter and they began a search immediately and later that day after they began their search they found Suzanne's bike at the bottom of a steep ditch off of County Road 225 
and her helmet was found less than a mile away a few days later. And it was actually found near where Barry said he was driving early on the morning of May 10th. We'll get to that in a little bit. Um, the helmet um, was noted to have scratches, but there was nothing on the helmet to suggest that she actually like had a bike accident or that she crashed or that she fell down this steep ditch or, you know, whatever was trying to be shown happened. Um, the FBI agent that later spoke in court about this said that like there were no dents like there were no like gashes in the helmet or like anything that remotely looked like she crashed so that was interesting upon their discovery and investigators also noticed that Suzanne's wallet and her camelback were found in her car and those were things she would normally bring with her when she went mountain biking and I know most of us probably know what a camelback is, but if you don't know, a camelback is basically like a wearable, portable um, bag of water, pretty much, that is inside of a backpack, and you can drink from it. So a lot of people who ski use it or hike or whatever, camelbacks are great. I think they're a genius invention, but she would always bring this with her, and so they were kind of like, oh, that's a red flag. Why would she not bring that with her? Kind of weird. And so they kept searching, and the search continued into the early morning hours of May 11th with no results. And later um, on May 11th, like later that day on Monday, the area was searched once again. So I'm assuming probably once the daylight came back. And the Chafee County TAC team was called, um, along with search parties from the Department of Corrections. So there was a total of more than a hundred personnel that were used during this search. And they also brought in tracking dogs and drones. And by Tuesday evening, Suzanne had still not been found. That's a lot of searching and a lot of resources to not find a single thing. You know what I mean? Well, besides the bike and the helmet, but that's just kind of wild to me. Um, on May 14th, so four days after Suzanne went missing, the family of Suzanne offered a $200,000 reward. Um, so Barry put out $100,000 of his own money, and then a family friend matched this. And the flyer that they put out, I saw it. You can probably look it up too. But it basically just says like, hey, if you can bring Suzanne back home safe, this is your reward. There will be no questions asked. So, kind of just like, you know, a typical flyer for a missing person. So, the next day, on May 15th, something interesting happened. A personal item belonging to Suzanne was found, but no details were released as to what this was. And y'all, I researched this case so stinking hard. Like, I tried to find any inkling or any type of suggestion as to what this personal item might have been. And there is absolutely nothing. There's not even like a hint or a guess from anyone as to what this was. And the police are still tight-lipped about what they found. Um, but because of this, the law enforcement agencies and authorities had a news conference Um so I watched that video. I found it. You can go watch it too if you feel so inclined. But here's what I 
gathered from this news conference. So the sheriff's office solicited the help of many law enforcement agencies, including the Colorado Bureau of Investigation and the FBI. And with the help of CBI, a tip line was started. So that's great. That's always a good step in the right direction. And um, the sheriff who spoke during this news conference said that since they received the initial call from uh, Jean Ritter, the general area was searched where she supposedly disappeared. Um, there were foot searches done, air searches, like I mentioned with the drones. They had canine support and over 2,000 man hours went into the search by this point on May 15th. That's a lot, but also good for them because like good for them for jumping on this from the get-go and activating the people that they needed to get there to help search for Suzanne. Um, but on May 15th, the date of this news conference, the sheriff said they were treating it as a missing persons investigation at this time. It was nothing more than that at this point. Um, so the personal item was found in the area of County Road 225 and Highway 50. Kind of like I've said where Suzanne frequented on her bike and where her stuff was found. Um, like her bike and her helmet. So because of this find, they launched a bigger, more targeted search. And I know that bigger and targeted <laughs> kind of seem like contradicting words. But kind of what it made it sound like was that the item that they found maybe either like went with something else, if that makes sense, or it, like there was something in conjunction to what they found that maybe prompted them to search a larger area that something else could have been out there um, where this personal item was found, if that makes sense. Do you follow? Maybe. <laughs> I hope. <laughs> so while they were doing this search, they completely shut down Highway 50 and they brought in 90, that is nine zero well-trained searchers to scour this area and with their help they searched over two and a half miles on foot that's a lot of ground to cover like have you really considered like you might be thinking okay well a mile's not that much but like two miles that's not that much more when you're searching though for stuff that's so much area that's a lot and the sheriff in the news conference, I wanted to also bring this point up. He reiterated the fact that these 90 people were highly trained individuals. They are meticulous. They are particular. They know exactly what they're doing. And they basically have like eagle eyes. So the fact that there were this many highly trained people and they searched that much ground and they didn't find a single thing related to Suzanne just, I mean, blows my mind, but you might also be thinking, well, yeah, somebody did this because like, <laughs> why else would they wouldn't be able to find anything? So let's keep moving forward with that said. So two days after this news conference on May 17th, the Pueblo County Sheriff's Office dive rescue team searched bodies of water in the area and Chafee County Sheriff's Office asked residents to check their doorbell cams. Um, can I just add right here that doorbell cams have helped solve a lot of crimes. Not just like petty crime, but like murder investigations. Um, 
yeah, it's kind of amazing to me how much good that doorbell cams have done for a lot of people and their families. So I just had to add that in there. But police were asking people to preserve any footage that may, that they may have between May 8th and May 12th. They were specifically looking, I believe, to see who was coming and going in the area um, in a vehicle or on foot. They were looking for anything, obviously, that would put somebody somewhere at a specific time, whether it be Suzanne or someone else, so that they could narrow down their search. I mean, that's like what, that's what people, that's what law enforcement does, right? So, on the same day as May 17th, Barry took it upon himself, well, I, I don't know if it was just him, but with the help of somebody, because the video is pretty professional looking, um, he put out a video asking for Suzanne's safe return. Now, here's what really gets me here. The video was 26 seconds long. Um, are you kidding me? <laughs> I don't know if, if you're thinking the same thing that I am, but that is a little lackluster. Um, respectfully. Is, that's about as respectful as I can say that. Um, 26 lousy freaking seconds. Um, I watched this video several times, and you can watch this video as well. It is available to the public. But in the video, Barry is so calm, and he states the obvious things. Like, oh, we miss you. Your girls want you home. Like, we just want you home safe. Like, like duh, dude. Like, of course you want all those things. I mean, like, yes, that's reasonable. But at the same time, there was no emotion behind it. It was kind of like he was just saying it to say it. Like, it was rehearsed. Like, he... He thought about this before he did it. And like he wanted to say specific things, if that makes sense. And one of the things that he said that really stuck out to me was that he said, quote, if anyone out there that has you, you know, end quote, but dot, dot, dot. And that right there to me told me two things. And I, I, I actually... Side note, I actually remember when this video came out last year on the news and I saw it and then I was like, that he did it. He done did it. Because like, why would you just randomly say, oh, if someone out there has you or to the person out there that has you, like he all was already kind of assuming that she was abducted. So that told me two things then and that tells me two things now that he believes someone abducted her and he may or may not have known who that person was. Or he was just saying that to get the heat off of him. In other words, he knew what happened to her and he was just trying to make it look like he didn't know. Yeah, a little fishy. Um, because I can tell you, if it were me making a video about someone missing that I really cared about, I would have been like hysteric. I would have been emotional. I would have been like a deer in headlights, you know, maybe I would have been like in shock or like catatonic. Like I would have been distraught and I would have used more descriptives. Like I would have been saying like, here's the, here's the clothes that she may have been wearing when she was biking. This is what she would normally wear. Here's the color of her bike. Here's the color of her helmet. Like, did you see her or did she pass by you? Here's the color of her hair. Like, you know, all those things 
just to try to get someone to help or to jog someone's memory. But he didn't do any of that. Oh, and also, I want to note, the entire time he's talking, he's shaking his head back and forth like no. Like that motion with his head. And listen, I am no like behavioral analyst type person, but I've watched videos of them on YouTube before. And when someone does that and is giving information, they're contradicting themselves. And they're kind of giving themselves away. So again, I'm not a profiler, but when you nod your head, or not nod, but when you move your head back and forth like that, and you're saying, if anyone out there that has you, it, you know, it just doesn't match up. So anyway, um, two days after that video came out, so on May 19th, the Morphew home is visited by law enforcement and it's roped off. And at the time, it was unclear if authorities were searching the property or if they were searching for something specific. Um, but according to one news article from Fox 31 News in Colorado, the Morphew family was not allowed to enter the home at that time. So that tells me one thing. Uh, they got a warrant and they'd be searching the property. Um, good on them because that's, you know, what they need to do. And while they were in the home, they noted one strange thing that was also a huge red flag. Um, investigators said later on um, that Barry was very calm while they were searching the home. And I apologize if I've mentioned this before. I've recorded this three times, so I kind of lost track of what I've said. But <laughs> I apologize if you're hearing this again. But they said Barry was very calm. He was not asking any questions. And he didn't really seem too concerned. Like, he wasn't, like, looking around asking, you know, like, hey, can I help? Or is there anywhere that I can help you look? Can I, like, give you access to a certain place? Like, he wasn't doing any of that. They just said he kind of just walked around the house like, yeah, okay, like, here's this, here's that. Like, here you go. That's a, woo, red flag. Or siren, I guess, is what I wanted to say. <laughs> but, so... After July 9th, okay, so that was that was May 19th, but after July 9th, no searches were conducted. Um, yeah, unfortunately, sadly, with missing persons cases, you can't search forever, you know, especially after you don't find really anything because that's a lot of man hours, that's a lot of resources to use, and if you're not finding anything and you have exhausted all of your options in all of the locations that you need to, then there's not really much else for you to do until like a lead comes in or a tip comes into that tip line, you know? So I understand why they had to put a halt on the searches. I think anyone would. Um, hello, the Brian Laundry case. Um, <laughs> anyway, I digress. So July 24th, around that time, Neighbors started to demand more answers from law enforcement about the disappearance of Suzanne because, like, they were thinking, like, hello, like, this never happens here. Like, what's going on? Is there a killer on the loose? Do we need to be aware of anything? Like, do we need to, like, hide my kids, hide my wife situation? Like, what's going on? And they pretty much told them, like, you know, there's no threat to the public, but 
like there's not really much we can do right now. So people started placing teal and yellow ribbons along the road that led to the Morphews property. And that road is also, like I mentioned before, where Suzanne took most of her bike rides. So I kind of feel like though that people, you know, we're seeing all this stuff on the news and seeing stuff about Barry. Maybe this is like far off and I'm just making a bad assumption here, but I can't help but feel like some of these people were like, let's put this up so that it reminds her husband, Barry, we have not forgotten about this. We care about Suzanne. We want to know what happened to her. Like we demand answers. I don't know. I just can't help but feel like that that's kind of like where they were going with some of that. And also to pay respect to Suzanne, of course. But let's talk about Mary Branson. So, not to confuse you, but this is a very important person um, in this case. Mary Branson lived off of County Road 105 on the east side of Salida. Now, something happened with Mary, and she woke up in the middle of the night to hearing loud noises at a construction site that was going on next door to her house. And guess whose property that was yeah it was one of Barry's work sites um <gasps> yeah it's kind of crazy so here's what she told a reporter she said although my hearing is going my memory is sharp she heard a loud noise in the middle of the night on Mother's Day weekend and here's a direct quote from her at the very first, I thought it was a truck or something, maybe parked in my driveway or something, but no. It kept running and coming from the same direction over there, and I had been hearing all of this noise for quite a while, end quote. Um, Mary said she heard this noise going on for about half an hour, so she was like, yeah, okay, this is weird. Um, it's in the middle of the night on a weekend. Like, what's happening? Is someone taking a joyride on the Bobcat? Like, what's going on? So, she later asked construction workers if they left keys in their equipment and they said yeah we do but we always hide the keys so like if you just showed up and want to take a joy ride on the bobcat you wouldn't know where the keys were so whoever was operating this machinery knew where the keys were is what i'm saying um but mary um obviously called authorities and told them this because she knew that barry was working at this place at this work site at this construction site and she told this reporter that um, investigators were using tractors to dig in quote quite a few places and they were also using special equipment that also quote could see through cement and they even tore up in her words half of the cement block that was laid down for the garage on the property. Now, why they only tore up half, I don't know, but my assumption is that they didn't want to tear down the actual structure of the garage, and maybe that's why they didn't tear up the rest of it. I'm just assuming that, but what do I know, really? But yeah, it is kind of odd slash concerning that they only dug up half of it, because what could be under the other half, you know? So that's Mary. Mary, we thank you for your service. Um, thank you for your intel there. That is, I think, a big key to this story. Now, let's also talk about another witness in a way. His name was Tyson Draper, and he's a YouTuber 
that was visiting a friend in Colorado, and he just ended up being near Maysville, near the Morphew property. And he said he wanted to help while he was there, and he wanted to help search for Suzanne. So he went over there, and he started walking along the county road where she um, would often go biking and where her bike was found and all that. So here's what's creepy. He, by chance, ended up face-to-face with, you guessed it, Barry Morphew. I just get the willies. Um... And he videotaped their conversation. Thank you, Tyson Draper, for videotaping this conversation because it's real strange. Um, In the video, Barry describes where Suzanne's bike was found off of County Road 225 and what it looked like when it was found. Um, He said something was wrong with the front wheel and he apparently changed the subject immediately after saying this. But... He would also go back, like he would change the subject, but then he would go back to talking about Suzanne, and Tyson said he kind of went off on these tangents where he would just like make up these theories about what could have happened to Suzanne and like those kinds of things, and Tyson also mentioned that uh, Barry took the liberty of saying where he was when Suzanne disappeared. So I thought that was kind of strange. He just like brought it up and Tyson was like, whoa, dude, you're kind of being forthcoming with all this information. And Barry pretty much talked the whole time and Tyson didn't really get to say anything. He just, Barry just kept talking. But Barry said that he was at a job in Denver at the time Suzanne vanished. And Tyson note also noted this. He said, quote, he looked wet, cold, and distraught. He looked like he was out searching or doing something. Now, again, maybe I'm making assumptions, but I know I said I wasn't going to make assumptions, but mm, I'm gonna. Okay, I'm sorry, but not really. Um, if you are wet and cold and distraught, and you are kind of having a spaz attack and you're giving out information that you probably shouldn't be to a complete stranger, that's a little weird. And you're talking about your whereabouts and theories. I don't know. To me, it just seems like you were either out there like hiding evidence or making sure evidence wasn't being found or you were making sure something was set up or not you know, making sure something wasn't going to be seen. I don't know. That's just, that's odd. That is very odd. So I think that's also very important to note, just the way that Barry was, like his demeanor during this interaction. And again, you can go look this up on YouTube. It is available. It is, it's weird. It is weird. So let's move forward to September the 2nd of 2020. Um, so Jeff Puckett was a coworker of Barry's who worked for his landscaping company. He is also from Salida, Colorado, and he told investigators that he was ordered by Barry to come to Denver the morning of September 2nd. Um I don't like the word ordered. You know, that's that's a specific word to use here, I believe, because Barry it doesn't make it sound like Barry asked him to come. Barry ordered him to come. Like Dude, you don't have a choice. Get here. So Jeff went to Denver, but he didn't see Barry 
because Barry was like, oh, I got a family emergency, and he left. But when Jeff got to his room, he walked in, and he was immediately overwhelmed by the scent of chlorine. And he said it also looked like um, Barry had taken a shower because his towels were all over the floor. And he found a pile of mail in the room. And um, he also noted that the bed didn't look like it had even been slept in or anything. It just looked like he sat on top of it, you know, and that was really it. But Jeff thought the mail pile was strange in a hotel room because it is strange. Um, who brings their mail to a hotel room in Denver? I, I would not. Like, who cares that much about their mail to bring it with them? Well, apparently Barry does. And when Jeff kind of started looking through the mail, he noticed that some of it was from an insurance company on um, insuring a property. So, yeah. Jeff was like, yeah, this is real strange. So, he gave the mail to the FBI. Good on you, Jeff. And um, later, Barry kind of had like, I don't know if they ever had like actual beef, but like, Jeff was trying to say, like, hey, this is what happened. And Barry was like, Jeff was in jail for, like, nine years. Like, basically, don't believe what he says. So, mm, I don't think so, Barry. But investigators went to the hotel, and they spoke with the hotel manager. And the hotel manager stated that they do not clean their rooms with chlorine. They use, like, a peroxide um, disinfectant-type solution. And they said, our pool area was closed because of COVID. Like, we, no one was allowed to swim. And there would have been no way anyone would have gotten their hands on chlorine from us. Like, it was all under lock and key. So, mm, basically saying, dude, it smelled like chlorine because you brought chlorine with you to the hotel room. So, anyway, um, the hotel manager pretty much confirmed that, like, yeah, there's no way chlorine would have got up to that room from us. <laughs> and I, I mean, you got to know too that they checked the footage and all that stuff from the hotel. I mean, like, why wouldn't they? So they would not see him going into the pool stealing chlorine. So anyway, um, fast forward to later that month of September 28th and cadaver dogs were brought onto the property that Barry owned that I talked to you about where that house was being built. And they, uh, the cadaver dogs allegedly got a hit on human remains, but no remains were actually found. And the sheriff's office, you know, came back later, I believe on their Twitter account and said like, look, we're aware of the rumors. We know that they're circulating, but we did not find any remains. And that's all they said. So a lot of people took that as, okay, so the cadaver dogs did get a hit then because you didn't deny it. But you did say no remains were found. So they did confirm one thing, but not the other, you know? So that's what kind of people assumed. So now let's talk about Suzanne's brother, um, Andrew Mormon. Um, what a guy, let me just say. After the searches stopped in July, um, like I said earlier, he really took over and just took the reins of this whole thing and he organized search parties and he really wanted to help because that's his little sister. And he said like, look, like they've stopped. What else am I supposed to do? Just let this go cold or like, just let it, 
go. Like, I can't. Like, I have to go do my part. I have to go help. I have to go search for her. So, in his searching and things like that, um, he brought up something that he had heard um, following a search of the Morphew family home. Now, I don't know if this was the initial search. I know that law enforcement went to the Morphew family home twice. Um, so I don't know which time this was, but he said, from what I understand, um, they said there was an overwhelming smell of bleach in the home. Yeah, okay, so you got the chlorine and you got the bleach. It's not looking good for you, homie. Um, and something else that Andrew mentioned as well was that when CBI, so Colorado Bureau of Investigation agents, um, asked him why they couldn't find any coolers at the Morphew home, he was kind of like, what? Like, I, I don't know. And investigators said, well, we know Barry is a hunter and he's an avid hunter and, you know, he talks about that a lot and he has equipment to go hunting. And when you hunt, you possibly camp. Wouldn't you have coolers? And he was kind of like, well, yeah, I guess. And they said, well, we couldn't find a single cooler at their home. Not a one. Is that not weird or what? Yeah, there's something to that, I'm telling you. So, thought that was very strange and needed to be said here. Um, also, more on Andrew. So, Andrew garnered hundreds of volunteers and he even got the help of uh, cadaver dogs to help with his searches. And the dogs hit on three different places for human remains. But again, nothing was ever found. But there are no details on where those exactly were or where those places are. Um, and again, for the second time, um, as Andrew and all these people were searching... In this area, Andrew said that they ran into Barry again on the mountaintop where evidence was found. I don't know if that was her personal item or the bike or the helmet. I'm not sure. But where evidence was found. And Andrew said Barry was hanging up trail cams and he was carrying a shotgun on his shoulder. And he said Barry was warning people not to go on his property. Now, that does not sound like a man searching for his wife does it? No. Um, that sounds like a man who's trying to hide something. Um, and it should also be noted that you have all these searchers trying to help find this guy's wife, but Barry not once ever helped or offered to help with a ground search for his wife. Yeah. So, this guy is just a shady Sheila. Actually, he's the shadiest Sheila of all the shady Sheilas. You know what I'm saying? So, that's that. Now, let's talk about the text messages. This is where things get real, in my opinion. And this is where I think the bombshell is somewhere in these text messages. So, days before Suzanne's disappearance... Barry discovered text messages on Suzanne's phone. And long story short, he found out that she had been having an affair with someone that they both went to high school with. So Suzanne and this man, his name is Jeff Libler, I believe is how you say his last name. L-I-B-L-E-R. I don't know if it's Libler or Liebler. I don't know, but we're going to go with Libler. Or just call him Jeff. Easier. 
Um, so Suzanne and Jeff were in the same grade in high school and Barry was two grades ahead of them. So, um, Suzanne had an affair with this guy, Jeff, for two years and she, it was later revealed, um, that she had met Jeff seven different times in different states over the two years that they were together. So Suzanne would say that she was going to go have a girls weekend, but she was not having a girls weekend. And it was also later discovered that she had looked at moving to Ecuador with Jeff because of their great health care and low cost of living. Um, Jeff was also a married man, and he had six children. So, just not really the best situation. Um, and the day before Suzanne went missing, she was sending pictures of herself sunbathing in the backyard to um, Jeff. And... Barry came home that day on May 9th and saw her sunbathing in the yard. And unfortunately, this picture that Suzanne took of herself would be the last picture that showed Suzanne alive. That was like the last proof of life of her. Um, so Jeff texted Suzanne the next day on Mother's Day and said Happy Mother's Day. And he never got a response. And he thought that was kind of weird. So he sent her another message on May 11th, the next day, and he wished her well with her upcoming cancer treatments, but he also never got a response. And he thought that was kind of strange, but he just maybe assumed that, like, she was busy or something. So, here's where I think the bombshell text is. Given all this info, um, Suzanne had also texted Barry days before her disappearance, stating that she was done on May the 6th. So that was four days before she vanished. And she went on to say, I could care less what you're up to and have been for years. We just need to figure this out civilly. So I don't know about y'all, but to me that sounds like she is done done. She She's done. She's checked out. She's like, nope, I'm not doing this anymore. Um, she had made up her mind. And she had also texted a friend of her saying that she would, quote, live in a shack right now. And I'm sure he won't make it easy. He has always wanted control. Referring to Barry. Whew, man. Um, that's not a good situation to be in at all. And also something interesting that I wanted to add was that Suzanne also had suspected Barry um, was being unfaithful to her. So she purchased a spy pen to spy on him. And I don't believe it was ever used. But investigators did find it. And... They did find out that Suzanne was the one that purchased it. And they never said if they recovered any video or anything like that from it. But, yeah, they said they, they definitely found a spy pen. And she was planning on using it at some point in time. But, yeah, all these text messages, I believe, were the catalyst for what happened to her. Um, so, eventually, a year later... Unfortunately, Barry was arrested for the murder of his wife on May 5th of 2021. Now, let's talk about the trial in court time that Barry was involved with. So, the court heard from an FBI agent that Barry was not honest about his whereabouts around the time his wife went missing. Are we surprised? No. Um, Barry told this FBI agent initially that he was shooting chipmunks in his backyard on May the 9th. Really, dude? But that's why, like, 
well, you'll see in a second. The FBI agent also stated that they found a tranquilizer cap um, that would cover like the tranquilizer needle in the Morpheus dryer, um, along with bed sheets that belonged to, I believe, one of his daughters. Um, now, <laughs> I guess he said he was shooting chipmunks in his backyard to maybe like infer that oh, I was using a tranquilizer dart or something to kill these chipmunks. I don't know, but when they found that in the dryer, they were like, why would you have this? Like, why is this in your dryer? So, according also to this FBI agent, on May 10th, Barry headed to Broomfield, um, Colorado, and he made several different trash runs in various locations. And in this, like, several-hour time span that he was doing this, he also changed his shirt several times. And Barry later stated that one of his trash runs included throwing away tranquilizing materials. Why would you be doing that? Why? <laughs> Why would you go to various places unless you were trying to hide something? If you weren't trying to hide anything, just throw your trash away in the nearest dumpster, you know what I mean? But not for this guy, because he's up to no good, because he's a shady Sheila. So, the court also heard about several other things. Suzanne had shared with friends that testified at this trial that her relationship with Barry was strained and that he was, quote, unstable. Yeah, you think? Um, and one of her friends, Sheila Oliver, stated that Suzanne had shared times where Barry had been abusive towards her. And at one point, in, at one time in particular, Barry had smacked Suzanne against the wall and held a gun to her head. Whew. Gosh, that's terrifying. Um, and I believe also the youngest daughter, I could, don't quote me on that, but one of their daughters um, even told their um, mom to get a restraining order against her father so that her mom could get away from him. That's how bad it was. I just... I can't imagine, I cannot imagine that, especially being one of the daughters, knowing that your mom is having this hard of a time. But what's sad is that Suzanne told her friend Sheila that Barry would try to get the girls to turn on her whenever she and Barry would argue with one another. And that is really, really awful. Um, and Suzanne also mentioned that she had tried to divorce Barry several times, but he wouldn't let her. But Barry came back and was like, no, that's not true. I would have written a check for her half and let her go her own way. Sure. Sure. Like, we believe you. Um, so, what's also interesting, too, is that investigators were also trying to find Suzanne's journal because they had hoped that there would have been details about their personal life in there or feelings written down. Who knows? But they couldn't find it. And instead, they found remnants of a book binding in the home fireplace, along with fragments of paper. And when they asked Barry about this, he said, oh, we have been cleaning out file filing cabinets this week. Insert eye roll here. Um, but what investigators did not reveal upon their first, I guess, couple times that they... Um, searched their home was at this trial they showed pictures that they had photographed of Barry's hands and arms 
and they showed that he had scratches and marks on his hands and arms. And specifically on his left arm, there appeared to be injuries from fingernails. Now, I am not an investigator, but in my opinion, it would be pretty obvious if a scratch on your arm was a fingernail or from something else. You know what I mean? Because like fingernails make, to me, a very distinct like mark and they have a certain look to them. So I feel like if you saw that, then you and you were like, yeah, that's probably from fingernails. That That's not good for you. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So this FBI agent that was, you know, sharing all this information, he also found discrepancies in Barry's whereabouts um, and also stated that Suzanne was a frequent phone user. And he said that Suzanne stopped sending any messages at all at 2.13 p.m. on May 9th, which was 30 minutes before Barry got home that afternoon. Yeah. Um, so the reason why they mention Barry's whereabouts is because his phone records show that at around between the 2 and 3 p.m. time, he was running around the house, possibly chasing Suzanne. But we're going to get there in just a second. Um, I just needed to mention that now. So let me explain the charges that Barry is facing at this trial and is still currently facing, by the way. So uh, we got first-degree murder, tampering with evidence, attempting to influence a public servant, tampering with a deceased human body, possession of a dangerous weapon, and forgery because he submitted a mail ballot in his wife's name in the 2020 election. Are you kidding me? Oh my lord. It's just, gosh, it just doesn't end with this dude. So here's the kicker though. Barry bailed out of jail on September 20th, 2021. He posted his $500,000 bail, and you might be wondering, what the heck? Why was a bail even set for this creep? Well, the judge ruled there was enough evidence to keep moving the case forward, but not enough to hold Barry without bond. So he was forced to set his bond at $500,000. Now, I don't know a lot about bonds and stuff like that, but a lot of people cannot pay $500,000, but apparently Barry can. So, he got the heck out of there. Um, and here is what I want to get into just a little bit. Um, here is what authorities think happened. I repeat, authorities, not me. <laughs> so, initially, like kind of the premise of their whole um, hypothesis, I guess, is Barry took steps to control Suzanne incapacitate Suzanne, stage a crime scene, and create an alibi for her disappearance. And that's exactly what I think happened as well. So here are the details as to what they think happened. Barry came home on May 9th as Suzanne was sending messages to Jeff. And remember, he found out about this before May 9th. And Barry used a tranquilizer dart to incapacitate Suzanne at around 2.44 p.m. So, back to where Barry lied about his whereabouts on the day on May 9th. Um, Barry's phone records showed that he was running around the house at this time, possibly chasing Suzanne while she was still conscious. So, they think that he shot her with a tranquilizer dart, and before she passed out or went to sleep, 
She was running for her life because she knew maybe what was coming or she knew that he was going to hurt her and she was probably terrified. I just can't wrap my mind around that. But anyway, um, Barry's phone went into airplane mode three minutes later. So I'm guessing at around 2.47 p.m. And it did not come out of airplane mode for nearly eight hours. Oh my gosh. Just makes my stomach turn, to be honest. And then, phone and truck records showed that he was moving, like, in a car, um, at around 3 a.m. So, <laughs> that is where, um, like, when I mentioned the bike, you know, like, where, like, her bike and her helmet and stuff were found. Um, at the very beginning of this episode, I said that um, he was... Um, reportedly found like or his records showed like from the truck and stuff that he was in that area in the early morning hours of May 10th so that's what that is that he was moving at around 3 a.m. and they also authorities also think that Barry staged Suzanne's bike by most likely just throwing it down the ditch to make it look like she crashed and remember how Barry said he was going to Broomfield yeah no. Um, that was in the opposite direction of where Suzanne's bike and helmet were found. So he was most likely staging the bike and the helmet at this time that he said he was driving to Broomfield. Um, basically, it just doesn't make sense geographically because where he said he was is not the location he should have been going in to go to Broomfield. And Barry can also not provide a last sighting. So he has never once really been able to say, oh yeah, this I remember this is the last time I saw her. This is like, you know, where she was. And in fact, I read something that said, um, yeah, I saw her um, like snoring in the bed very loudly and she was breathing very slow. And investigators were like well yeah that's kind of characteristic of someone who was tranquilized because that's what happens with animals apparently when you tranquilize them and uh, that's like all he could say but he couldn't like you know place her or like really give much more of a description than that and what's also interesting is that Barry kept saying oh like oh there's no evidence there's no evidence like yeah like you can you think you know what's happened but there's no evidence to that um, well, investigators think, um, when you say that, that you are suggesting that you already know what happened to her and that you took steps to ensure that there was no evidence because why else would you say that? So Barry, um, apparently, um, he apparently refused two polygraph tests when he said he did not. He also refused a critical analysis test and that the data collected from his truck, you know, they were like, dude, this doesn't match up with what you're telling us. Um, and someone expressed, a someone who's close to the family, they will not reveal who it is. They wanted to maintain their, um, I can't ever say this word, I, anonymous. I, anyway, they wanted to remain anonymous. <laughs> Bless. Um, this person basically said that they're worried that Barry is tampering with the investigation. 
And I wouldn't be surprised. I wouldn't put it past this dude. But, you know, Barry was like, no, I've cooperated with every interview. I have never refused one. And I never, I was never even offered a polygraph test. But one of Suzanne's family members was like, no, you've refused two polygraph tests and a couple other things. And I wanted to note that a critical analysis test, from what I could find, is basically just like a, it's kind of like a situational thing where they will give you certain scenarios and certain situations and ask how you would like handle that. Basically just like assessing your critical thinking. And he refused that. So, mm, I feel that that critical analysis test would probably give quite a bit of information, um, you know, into Barry's mind and how he operates. And he knows that. And he that's probably why he refused to take it. And um, because a polygraph, you can't always count on a polygraph. Um, they're not super reliable. Um, yeah, they can help, definitely, when trying to find, like, a verdict or a, a perp. But they're not always 100% accurate. So, he apparently refused that because he was too scared. Because he probably knew if he took it and he failed that he was done for. And... He should be. But now, like I said, Barry is out of jail. He posted his $500,000 bail. And I think he is just waiting for his court date. So, I am just kind of flabbergasted, to be honest. Um, I told you that there were a lot of details here. And to be honest, there are a lot more details. But this episode would have probably been into like three parts. <laughs> and I don't think I have the energy to sit with a case for that long. You know what I mean? Like some of these, it's just kind of, it's just a lot. Like I need to just talk about them and then move on, if that makes sense. So that's pretty much where we're at right now. Um, as sad as that is, Sue, nothing of Suzanne has been found to this date unless it is just being kept under wraps. But nothing has been found. Her remains have not been found. Um, it is just, so sad. It is so unfortunate. I hate it so much for her brother, Andrew, and their daughters, uh, Mallory and Macy. I can't, I can't imagine, um, how that feels. And I remember reading something that said when they were in court and they showed a picture of Suzanne, it was the one she took of herself sunbathing in the yard. Um, they showed that in court and someone said that when they put that up on like the, um, screen or whatever that their daughters just broke down and became very emotional and rightfully so because I mean gosh that was the last time that your mother was pretty much alive and to know that she vanished not long after that picture is heartbreaking and you know everyone initially thought that she disappeared on May 10th but really it was the day before on May 9th because, like I said, all those things that law enforcement said that they think happened, her being chased around the house and everything, like, they have the records to prove that something went on on May the 9th. So, it's just sad all around. And I really hope that there's justice for her. Um, and I hope that one day we will all figure out what happened to her and that their family can get closure. Um I just know that that is so incredibly hard on them. Um, so I wanted to give the number 
of the tip line. To be honest, I don't know if it's still active because it was made um, in May of 2020. But the number to the tip line is 719-312-7530. If you live in Colorado or in, live in the area or if someone happens to listen to this podcast and knows anything, um, please call that number. Or you can call the Chafee County Sheriff's Office at 719-539-2596. Any tip helps, big or small. It doesn't matter. They say at the end of this um, press release here that says, Anyone with information into the disappearance of Miss Morphew are asked to call the tip line. Um, So, yeah. They... The sheriff's office has mentioned that they are very thankful for social media for keeping this case out there and that it's uh, being talked about. They're very grateful for that, but they need, you know, they just, they need to pin this guy. They need to pin her husband because, I mean, who else would have done this? You know, like it, it's, it's pretty obvious that he's, he's involved in some way or another. So anyway, that's where we're going to end this. Um, maybe I will give an update on something if something comes up. But as of now, things have been pretty quiet, unfortunately. So um, prayers to Suzanne's family. Um, seriously, I I can't imagine how hard it is. And especially when Mother's Day comes around. Oh, my Lord. Wow. But anyway, um, thank you guys so much for tuning in. I really appreciate it, and if you have any case that you would like me to talk about, please send me an email at I'm telling you what at gmail.com, please. Um, the cases that I'm going to talk about in the coming weeks are um, cases that you guys have sent me, and I'm super thankful for that because not a lot of them have been covered nationally, and I think that's what makes them even more interesting. So if you have something that you would like to be talked about, let me know. Send me an article. Send me what you know. I don't care. Just send me anything and everything you got. Um, I'd be happy to read about it. Um, but with that said, I hope you all have a fantastic Thanksgiving. I hope you get to eat your feelings and not feel bad about it. And if you're doing a 5k, I'm there with you in spirit. (laughs) Um, just, you know, when you do a 5k, you just enjoy your food a little bit more, you know, so kudos to you. But anyway, Thank you again. Thank you for your support and stay tuned for the next episode. Bye guys.